Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well. HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Ahoy there, Nemo Martin, creator of Try Forgotten here. Thank you so much for listening to the show. After this episode of Below Decks, we'll be taking a short break and we'll be back in one week with episode six of Try Forgotten, Lay Day. See you then. Rusty Quill presents Below Decks, a Trice Forgotten deep dive. Episode four, Ethical Research and Colonial Critique. Hello and welcome to the fourth episode of Below Deck, where we dig into some of the research questions, stories and generally tangential interesting things that went into making Trice Forgotten. I'm Raf, my pronouns are she, they, and I'm the director of the series as well as one of the writers. So today we're going to be talking about ethical research and colonial critique. 
This is coming out after episode five of the podcast. So by now we've had stories about catching stingrays. We've had snails. We've met William Henry Baker Blair of the Queen's Museum. And we have been introduced to Inez de Luna, self-described naturalist extraordinaire. So it's in this context of decolonizing natural histories that we're going to be talking today. We are thrilled to be joined by our guest, Jonathan Ablett. John, could you introduce yourselves with your pronouns and tell us what you do? Hi, I'm John Ablett, as most people call me, he, him, and I'm senior curator in charge of mollusks at the Natural History Museum in London. Very excited. (laughs) And of course, we are also joined by Nemo Martin, who needs little introduction, but I'm going to ask them for one anyway. Nemo, could you introduce yourself? Yeah, hi, I'm Nemo Martin. I use they, them pronouns, and I am the creator and lead writer of Tries Forgotten. Brilliant. So, John, can you explain your job? Oh, tricky one. (laughs) Um, Okay, so I often tell people that I am like a librarian, but instead of looking after books, I look after dead animals. And those animals just happen to be mollusks. To me and my team, we look after about 8 million mollusk specimens, some dry, some preserved in alcohol, or some other various liquids. And we store these specimens in order to learn more about the natural world. Sometimes it's us inside the museum doing the research. Often it's scientists from around the world, a truly global audience of scientists, using all the specimens we have, all the literature, all the artwork, all the kind of attached knowledge, usually to learn more about the natural world. But we do also work with architects, engineers, designers, historians, anyone that kind of wants to get some sense of any information really, I guess, or or how things link together using the natural history objects that we care for. Mm -hmm. So to start very broad then, and this is I think a question for both of you, we've become very aware, rightly, of conversations about decolonising in the context of places like the British Museum and history museums and museums that have a more kind of anthropological lens. So how does colonial critique and ethical research play into your field in the fields of natural history Ooh. i've asked you the biggest question <laughs> that i can imagine explain the topic of today's episode yeah. okay so as we all know this is incredibly complex mm. you know there are a huge amount of different views and opinions on this and i would like to say at the start mine is not necessarily the view of the natural history museum <laughs> it, is a, it is a personal one that i have picked up for good or bad along the way and i think is separate I know some people don't agree from the arguments that we have with the British Museum. Mm. I mean, maybe I feel that because I don't work in <laughs> sort of archaeology and ethnographic sort of realms. I think that firstly, that we have to talk about, name, honour the specimens that came from places where, especially when they were taken without the consent of local peoples, mm. often when local peoples, indigenous people were used for collections, mm. maybe not in the most pleasant of ways I mean without backtracking at the beginning there are (laughs) wonderful historical cases of a kind of a real collaboration even in the 1800s 1700s between indigenous people and sort of western European collectors Mm. but I'm sure that was not the case in in all times I guess like part of the problem is that we already live in the world where the damage has been done to a certain extent and so now it's like what can we do with what we have and as someone who has gone through, like, <laughs> I'm not sure whether this happened with, when I was working with you in snails, but definitely in when we were working in fish, like, old men would die, and then all of the stuff in their garages would be donated to the museum, and then it would be my job for, like, two weeks to go through 
every crusty old jam jar, literal jam jars that they had filled with random fish that they had taken from random rivers with no notes or like notes in a code that only they understood with a document from like 50 years ago and you had to decode everything and it was like sometimes having jars that were like a tub of fish with thousands of fish in it and like going through all of these gunky ass fish and being like oh my god and so keeping those together has its story in a certain way that I feel like a lot of people don't really I, I think people go to the museum and see like oh well obviously that tiger specimen was got by itself and it was like taken by this person and so it would be very easy to return it but then sometimes like the behind the scenes stuff of like yeah having a whole jam jar of stuff in it also this jam jar of fish had a seahorse and a turtle and like a rat or a bat once in a fish jar and it was just like it's not clean behind the scenes i guess (laughs) thinking about um collections actually this is a big question which maybe i should ask at the end but i'm gonna ask it now um i I was thinking about the act of curating because it seems to me as an outsider and not someone who's ever worked in a museum that the act of curating a collection is in its own way a a narrative act Mm. and as with all narrative acts you're choosing the story that you want to tell with this collection of specimens And I wondered if part of the colonial critique of collections and research would be to think about what narrative we are applying by how we order objects or specimens together. There was a really interesting exhibit, and I'm trying to remember what museum it is. It's like one of the small ones in like near Soho. It's like an old house that's been turned into a museum. It's not the John Soane Museum, the one in Spitalfields? Maybe, yeah. One of those small natural museums in London, which started off as one person's collection. There was a really interesting job they did once where they went and relabeled everything and there was a, a shipworm in Spirits and the label now read this shipworm is buried in wood that came from a ship that used to hold enslaved people. And that information hadn't been with the exhibit to begin with, but because of their attempts to, I think decolonize is not the right word to use there, but in their attempts to tell the story of colonization through specimens. I mean, I I still remember seeing that and being like, oh, it's not just a fascinating little worm in a piece of wood. Like this was taken from something that once held people as well. And I thought that was a really interesting way of like simply telling a narrative that doesn't get told very often. And I think it's a really interesting part of natural history that, I mean, obviously it's come to the fore recently. And I remember giving a little shout out to Miranda Lowe that, very wonderful curator of Crustacea at the Natural History Museum. And she did a talk a few years ago, maybe 10 years ago. It was the first time I'd ever heard. I can't remember. There was another uh, lady that did the talk with her who was not from mm. Natural History Museum. And they did a talk about decolonization of natural history. Mm. And it blew me away. Uh, at the time, I couldn't decide whether it was amazing or nonsense. And I say that respectfully, Miranda. Love you. Um, mm. But <laughs> I just, it did not... I, it, it, you know, when someone says something so new that your brain has not registered, I, mm. you know... So I had thoughts about the Elgin marbles and things like that, and I had never applied it to natural history objects before. And hearing it for the first time, I, I remember the, the room was in shocked silence. People, I think, again, I mean, I may be wrong, but I think people had kind of got this new idea and it was like, oh, yeah, oh, do I like this? Oh, no, am I a bad person? <laughs> um, mm. And I think we're learning so much 
like in lots of fields. And I think it's so interesting. And the way we deal with things, I'm sure, is not great at all times. And it's very clumsy and clunky. But there are little examples. And when you see something done like that, I think it changes the view of the of the, the non-museum person, the, the general public. But I think it also, and just importantly, changes the opinion of museum professionals. Some who are mm. crusty old white men. I'm getting there. <laughs> not by there. Um, but... Um, <laughs> You know, it does make a good change to the, the people that work in museums and deal mm. with collections. I, I, I believe the other person might have been Sibiridas because they published a uh, article in the Journal of Natural Science Collections, which is free to read. And I really recommend reading it. It was like one of the first things that I did read for this show. The article is called Nature Red in Black and White, Decolonial Approaches to Interpreting Natural History Collections. And one thing that I really enjoyed about that article, because it did start from the like, you know, what can we as natural history museums do to to approach decolonial attitudes to museums? But it also talked about how it's impossible or not impossible. I don't think that's the word that they used, but that their research can only be the first step of doing the research we can all be doing this research but actually what they identified they identified a need in like telling the stories in a way that you can't do in like uh, a natural history journal like a scientific journal and that was one of the things that I was like oh I can do that (laughs) (laughs) Um, like I can get this research that people are doing and starting to do and and there are loads of people now who have decolonial thinking groups about museums and the history of natural history is like a really interesting place where all these conversations are happening but for people who don't work in museums and people who don't work in this field that information does need to be transferred some way (laughs) and hopefully in a way that's not just a lecture (laughs) and so hopefully people are going to listen to Trice Forgotten and and have these thoughts and be like oh I can go and do more research about it but that you're not getting like the experience of having someone talk at you about science. (laughs) I remember you saying well, you've said I think on this on this podcast a couple of times that Trice Forgotten originally was going to be more about food mm. um, and then over time it turned into a show about science mm. and I was going to ask you sort of why that happened or when that happened. I think because I actually was going to soften the idea of colonialism in the show so I was formulating this idea about nautical epics and wanted to do it about collection and collecting but was a bit scared <laughs> that because I really, really like my friends at the Natural History Museum <laughs> that I wouldn't be able to say anything that would, I guess, upset that relationship. Like, you know, mm. also because I was working there, not just like had friends there. And it was in conversations with people like John and the other people that we're going to be talking to that I was like, actually... I don't think that I need to be afraid of that, (laughs) hopefully. And they were starting the conversations with me and giving me ideas. And I mean, any time that I was in, (laughs) there's a coffee break room where um, John works. And so I would have my phone out and be writing things on my phone as John. I saw you. Yeah. I saw you doing that. (laughs) (laughs) It was literally any time anything interesting like was raised. And I was like got my phone out pretending to text i I do want to say that nothing is fully based on anyone at the museum john is not a character (laughs) um but yes initially was like okay maybe food would be an interesting thing because you still have things about plants you still have things about animals you still have things about like collecting and killing and all of those conversations 
but it wasn't to do with museums. And then I was like, no, I, I think it does have to be about museums. It does have to be about, because those are the people who were making the, this terminology, like taxonomy, into vocabulary that then went into racial science and gender science and all of those kind of things. So yeah, that's why <laughs> um, I hopefully made it more complicated, which is a good thing. Well, that's a really, really good segue actually into asking about um, methods of collection uh, in terms of speaking of ethical research. Because um, obviously we have in episode five a, a lively discussion uh, brews over the, the catching of the, the coelacanth and Inez, uh, our character Inez makes the argument, oh, no, we absolutely have to kill it because if we don't look at the insides, how can we collect all of this valuable data around it? And some of our other characters, uh, Nor and Seaver in particular, are kind of very pro keeping it alive. So you've kind of touched on something there, Nemo, in that episode about methods of collection obviously with a living specimen this kind of also veers into sort of zoological territory methods of preservation but yeah how does that kind of intersect with ethical research so i i'm not sure in the past again fuse my own not natural museum i'm not sure (laughs) in the past that the museum have been great or and i don't just mean in london i mean any museum any Mm. natural museum about saying that we go out and we kill for want of a better word (laughs) animals we remove plants from the environment to preserve them in the museum Mm -hmm. and i've occasionally given talks or given tours to people and you can see slowly they understand oh you actually go and kill these occasionally Mm. and sometimes there is some people can be upset by that and i understand that you know i love natural history i work in natural history i don't enjoy killing animals Mm. but what i try to explain to people is when I mean, we can talk about days gone past, you know, people going out to another country, shooting something, putting their suitcase, coming back. Of course that yeah. happened. Nowadays, if I go and do field work, I have to get permission from the highest sort of areas in science. Say, I want to do this. I want to go and collect these kinds of animals. And this is the kind of research it's going to be. This is the gap it's going to fill in our knowledge. Mm. If it's in another country, for example, I have to go and do the same with the national park or the local landowners, the local wildlife officials. Uh, I have to get export permits. I have to get import permits for this country. And we have a team of registrars who make sure that we do everything legally by the book. For example, in 2019, I went on a marine collecting trip. And one of the things that we collected were cephalopods. And cephalopods are one of the few invertebrates that there are actually protocols about how to euthanize them. Mm. So, you know, I, I hope and I like to think that pretty much everyone that works in natural history has a huge respect for the animals that they work on, that they care for. And you want to kill, dispatch, however you want to pretty up uh, things with the least harm Mm. only take what you need Mm. and when we have these objects by making them available to the global community it means that other people don't need to go we can have a you know a limited number of collecting trips saying that you do need series one of the most important things that people often say is, is why do you need another one you've got one tree snail why do you want another tree snail and i always say a specimen or a group of specimens are an example of a species collected at one time and one place If you want to see changes over time, if you want to see changes globally, then you need representatives of that species from every corner of where it exists and also through time. You know, things getting bigger, smaller, rarer. Are there more females in the populations? Are there more males? Are you seeing deformities? What happens when there are uh, industrial incidents? Pre and post atomic bomb testing, how does this affect animals? Mm. Global climate change, can you detect that in the shells or the bones or the structures of animals that we have in our collections? So there is a need for ongoing collection but i hope that people understand and i and i'm sure museums do practice safe and ethical 
and responsible collecting. Yeah, I remember, I, I think one of the things that I've held in my brain for a really long time, and especially when I was writing this show, it must have been you who told me that, like, any time I have anything to do with snails in my head, I'm like, it must have been John. I don't know where else it could have come from. But the idea that sea snails are getting demonstrably thinner in their shells because of the acid in the water is, I believe, what I remember of that conversation. Yeah. And the idea of, like, we can actually track between the 19th century and the 21st century, how the level of acid in the ocean is affecting animals and thus it will affect human beings because these collections do exist at the Natural History Museum. And so that was one of the things when I was writing Inez, it's like not written out loud, but Inez will be one of these characters who is arguing for that, (laughs) that it's not just about having a trophy on the wall as a lot of 19th century or 18th century <laughs> collectors um, were seeing natural history, but as a way to hopefully understand the natural world. Yeah. And then I was also doing loads of research about indigenous people. And obviously that's also filtered into the conversation a little bit. And there was one story about a man who grows, I think, pine martens in Mugamagi. And he helps female pine martens go through like breeding season and in order to like make sure that they like survive through winters and they were saying this is not just altruism by understanding the the community of animals that they were also then able to see how many that they could take and kill and use for food or clothing and so it's not just like you know white men scientists who are (laughs) doing these kind of like cataloging but even in indigenous times even though we wouldn't have seen it as being like natural history science that same idea of like understanding what the population is in order to ensure that you're not taking too much and in order to ensure that the whole population of creatures or plants or trees is good to take from i I thought it was really interesting that they they did line up in my head even though these characters on the ship are a bit like "Ah, ah." to be fair steven makes the argument for not killing the coelacanth because it's cute so yeah i don't think he's wholly on the side of scientific inquiry yeah yeah Yeah, just uh if anyone wants to check it out what you were referring to do you remember was it's pteropods these kind of sea angels beautiful very thin-shelled organisms and as the changes in ocean acidification happen yeah these shells are starting to get thinner will dissolve they're kind of what we call an indicator species mm. and actually it could happen with lots of things things like baby squid and octopus that have very thin you know uh, internal shells that you know these are other things that may be affected and yeah mm. you're right yeah. i'm sorry i'm just thinking i'm brain dumping now what i really liked uh, going back to the podcast is inez's tone of voice i love the way that i, I love the character i kind of kept changing i couldn't quite place them for a long time but there were definitely ways they spoke that i could see that that natural historian element as mm. not a professional historian, but you know someone with a great understanding and respect of nature mm. and, and funny enough in the way they spoke not necessarily the words but some kind of sentence structure I've, I saw that in other people I've heard maybe something you were noting down in the tea room you never know <laughs> but uh, yeah it was really interesting to see that in a character so we to bring a character into the mix who has who has a scientific method basically um, whereas we have other characters on the ship who are interested in the natural world around them but probably in a, in a way that's much more like um, about sort of communing with it but actually I think what's really lovely about what you've both just said about why it's so important to do these studies and to take from the population but to know how much you're taking is actually that fit, feels like it sits across both of those approaches 
because these measures of populations are a way of of communing with those populations so that you know exactly knowing how much you can take Mm. let's use that actually to step back in time a little bit to sort of take us back to some of the stuff that we probably again i probably should have talked about at the beginning i've hosted this episode very well um which was so we've been talking a lot about things we can do in the present to make sure that the research is ethical to apply colonial critique but I wondered if you could talk a bit about why we had to apply a colonial critique to natural sciences in the first place so I'm thinking about things like museums being sort of these in their original inception these bastions of empire and ways of preserving and shoring up empire yeah I wonder if that's either of you something that you could talk about oh that's a tricky one because like I said this whole way of thinking is completely new for me I, I think I sometimes be quite wide wide-eyed and naive about things and you know just think nice scientists do nice things <laughs> I think first of all it's about acknowledging the harm and the people that went along with these things I mean I think probably the notion of setting up museums, I mean, it's a very old ones. you know, museums have existed for thousands of years. And I think people like to share their knowledge or show mm. off about their knowledge, at least. And, and people love order, you know, whether you're ordering your CD collection, your book collection, your comic collection, whatever. You know, we love order. We love organising the natural world. And I think the aims of a museum are usually pure. You know, mm. all the lovely Greek, Babylonian examples, libraries as well. Libraries are, are, you know, just a type of museum. Mm. But the reason I think it's important is, obviously, these are global things and they happened at a time when there was things like slavery. There Mm. were obviously things were transported on boats, I'm sure, where slavery uh, was involved in somehow, either within the shipping or, you know, boat owners. The people that uh, funded the boats made their money by sending the products of slavery back through, you know, things like that. You know, people had to transport these natural history objects some way or other, um, the way that they were collected using indigenous folk, the way that uh, I'm sure areas were cleared of their natural history, which may have been useful for farming, agriculture, wood, whatever, you know, habitats possibly damaged in collecting them. And I think these stories need to be told. And I think that society are hopefully becoming more aware that what happened in history didn't happen in a capsule and, and affected more than the storyteller and the people that you, you know, you think of these people, these famous collectors and explorers, but, you know, they were only the people that we hear about. The whole other story of the people that helped them, assisted them, mm-hmm. uh, freely or not. And I, it's not something that I know a huge amount of in a professional way. But mm-hmm. it's something that I am fascinated by. And I love the fact that we talk about it within the museum over coffee as much as we talk about it in conferences. Mm-hmm. It's not, it's not mm-hmm. something that I think people are wheeling out because they feel they should say it. Mm-hmm. It's something that the community is starting to question and understand slowly and and I find it really fascinating and I am 100% not an authority about it but as someone that's stuck in the middle uh, you know I I hope that my knowledge and understanding of it grows and and how we can deal with it better because I'm sure we're not doing it as best as we can now. I think one of the the first things that made me think about it was I was um, actually working on a theatre project with someone who is um, Canadian First Nations person And when I told them that I was working at the Natural History Museum, they asked me outright whether any of the bones of their family were at the museum. And I was like, I don't know, actually. And I will check for you. I don't think so, because it's the Natural History Museum in my head, like we were kind of saying at the beginning, like, oh, it's not the British Museum, so uh, um, there's like fish and snails. But it was only fairly recently that 
human remains were moved from the Natural History Museum to the British Museum, I believe. And I, I then went and read a book by Samuel Redman called Bone Rooms, From Scientific Racism to Human Prehistory and Museums. And he talks quite a lot about this idea of moving from not just collecting animal specimens, but how human remains became seen as animal specimens because of scientific racism. And so the the moving from like, it, there were quite like graphic descriptions, I guess, in this book about people who then started hunting people in the same terminology of hunting animals because they knew that museum curators wanted specimens to analyze and that and and there was some complicated stuff in there in that like it wasn't always that museum people who worked at museums were like we want all of these things but people got it into their head because they were going to museums and seeing human specimens that they were like oh they want those things they'll probably pay me to hunt some people so they would just like kill people first and then give them to the museums and be like so you're going to pay me for killing these human beings similar with like human zoos and stuff like that, which in my head very attached to museums. And yeah, I, I think that's where for me, it's like, we can't fully detangle what we have now from where it came from. Because yeah, like I said, it was only recently that the Natural History Museum didn't have human bones in the basement. And I mean, they've also recently changed one of the exhibits that was there for a long time was like the human being exhibit or something like that and it's now like not that or they're revamping it i'm not sure but they were like human skulls in the same kind of way that like animal skulls were being presented and i don't think in anyone's brains it was like outright like because non-white people are animals but that is where it started (laughs) and that is the kind of like convention um so yeah so that's kind of where the like messiness for me comes in with like someone who really likes natural history museums like you said Raph like I have loads of really good experiences there and I really like the science and I think that there is so much benefit in them but also a lot of tragedy and that was um, I I think a storyline that we were considering putting in with these bone rooms with human remains but ultimately decided wasn't the right fit for this show because (laughs) It's a lot. It's very traumatizing for a lot of people. N- not people that I am a part of, and I didn't feel like it was appropriate for me to be writing those stories. And I'm sure if you are interested in those kind of stories, you can you can search them out from, from own voices. But yeah, just wanted to acknowledge that that was a thing that we wanted to talk about, but was probably a step too far in the, this is a dark podcast. Yeah, well, as, as, as you have raised a number of times, it's not a podcast designed to re-traumatise anyone, quite rightly. Mm. Um, So listening to that, it feels like, um, and I'm just literally putting this together kind of as I speak, it feels like the common thread through a lot of what we've been discussing, both in terms of the history of natural history Mm. and now contemporary practices, 
is that when we have the, this sort of boundless drive for kind of sharing of scientific knowledge and expansion of scientific ideas, which is really phenomenal, has a real material impact on human lives that sometimes is overlooked in, uh, at, at worst, probably in this way, sort of going like, well, it's science, it's just science. And we're kind of above this conversation. That kind of at its worst and, and at its sort of quote unquote best is this, this sort of naivety, I think, of kind of that we're all sort of waking up to this idea that actually this is something that impacts natural history just as much as it does archaeological history. So yes, that's sort of, I think, where I'm coming to on this is. Mm. Uh, I don't have an end to that, so I hope whoever's editing this can do a good <laughs> job with that. Can I, can I just pick, I just wanted to carry on from Nemo because I was really intrigued what you were saying because it's the hall of human biology that was mm. recently uh, deconstructed i obviously been around it many times I, I have no idea if the, the skulls in it were real or models I once studied in a uh, institution which I won't name that did hold human remains and I found it very unnerving working with them I did not like working with them so somehow my brain just disconnected dead animal specimens but when mm. faced with dealing with human I just I did not like it I mean, they were very old and they were they are now not in this institution they've been moved to a more suitable institution um, but there are wonderful there's the um, wonderful Royal College of Surgeons Museum mm. which is harrowing but beautiful <laughs> in Lincoln's Inn Fields you know it's it's a, it's a medical teaching museum first and forward but there is a public aspect to it as well and it talks about the history of medicine and I'm sure there are some traumatic I know there are some traumatic stories and sort of artifacts in there but they do deal with it very well but it's a completely in my head it's completely different from the natural history museum but of course there's crossover yeah i mean even the stuff of like yeah whether they're real, real skulls or fabricated ones i remember like also other specimens on public display it's obviously a lot of them are real skins and stuff but i know there's a lot of fiberglass used so that people don't steal things um there's also in the horniman museum the absolutely hilarious chunky boy walrus um yeah. who is like yeah, the icon of like bad taxidermy. If you've never seen it, it's great. You should look him up. But he's like this walrus that I believe the story is that because the scientists hadn't seen a real walrus, they didn't know it was supposed to be wrinkly. So they just kept stuffing it and stuffing it until it was just the chunkiest boy. The hilarious, the smooth chunky boy of the museum. <laughs> I love those old kind of like when people sent back kangaroo skins and then someone try and reconstruct them in a painting and they like these floppy skins are like, yeah, I think it's a bit like this. This dude, they're like, it's not really a kangaroo. I love these things. They're so wonderful. Yeah. These beautiful bits of kind of unfinished stories or kind of attempted mm. or fragmented stories popping up through. So I, what was I looking at the other day? Um, someone tweeted an image of, I th think it was a dinosaur skeleton, but it kind mm. of, uh, with this sort of caption saying, this is widely regarded to be the worst reconstruction <laughs> of any kind of remains ever. And it is the sort of the head sort of the tail is attached to the head sort of a head and a tail and a leg uh, and you're looking going don't my dude you can't have thought it actually looks like that but yeah it's when you're reconstructing from nothing I know yeah I, I just find that really funny <laughs> like in my head I'm like I think it's funny because people were trying to reconstruct they were trying to classify people that they had never met based on bones that like they had been given and in the same way the same people maybe within a century were also trying to reconstruct like dinosaurs i i know the one that you were talking about raf and it's like got this huge like unicorn horn <laughs> on its head and it's like got like little troll legs and and in my head those ideas are really connected one is very funny and one is like has serious ramifications on how people are treated in the 21st century um 
but they are linked because they both are to do with taxonomy. They're both to do with um, taxidermy. They're both to do with categorizing. And, and like you say, John, like I love organizing things. I, that, I loved working at the Natural History Museum because part of my job was making things go in the right order <laughs> and making it all neat. And like sometimes with snails, just like moving loads of boxes around in a drawer in order to make it fit nicely and like a nice little jug- jigsaw puzzle. Great job. Um, I, I guess the kind of like ongoing question is where is the where is the middle? Where is the not doing genocide thinking, but is doing good thinking about the world and our place in it? Yeah, tries forgotten. <laughs> I was going to say if, if 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 the question didn't have complexities in it, you wouldn't have created an entire series to explore it, probably. <laughs> Something that I wanted to ask both of you, which we've touched on a few times, is this idea of the museum as an archive or a library, as well as the public collections. And I wonder if there's a bit of this um, idea of our perception of science museums and natural history museums not having as much to do with colonial critique as other museums might, sort of because we, as visitors, we see the public collections and we sort of don't see these miles and miles of uh, what's going on kind of behind those scenes. We only really see kind of the tip of the iceberg. Is it, I feel like a child asking this, what's it like behind the scenes? What are, what are, the, what are the archives and libraries like? Do you, um, do you deal with specimens differently kind of back there? What's, so, yeah. I think despite the museum's best efforts, I think lots of people come to the museum, they see the whale, they see the dinosaur, they have a coffee, and they go home. <laughs> and they have no idea that we have, you know, over 300 scientists working at the Natural History Museum, that we have 80 million objects, which is a crazy number. I just cannot get my head around. Like, mm. me and my team look after 8 million snail specimens. And it is rooms and corridors with cupboards, as far as you can see, filled drawer after drawer after drawer of specimens. Dry snail shells, jars mm. on shelves. And I feel immensely proud and lucky to work in the institution take away all the you know difficult conversations we've had a little minute ago just for one second <laughs> i cannot believe sometimes i get to work uh it's wonderful to think that i'm a small cog in a chain of curators starting from when the natural History museum was part of the british museum because separated in 1881 mm. and i you know it's like the campsite where you should leave your collection in better condition than you found it in i try to add knowledge mm. adding new specimens uh, updating the information on the things we have caring for it as well as I can and hopefully whoever takes over my job and the person after them will continue doing this and you know the collection will be able to grow I always think the museum's different from like a gallery a gallery is you know things are on a wall on a pedestal and you look at it and that's it like we want people to take the things off the shelves open the jars I mean by people I mean other scientists hopefully uh, we, you know we want them to, <laughs> to, to look at them photograph them dissect them if it's acceptable cut a bit off and and do whatever test they need to do literally but it's it's a living collection that changes our understanding our classification our knowledge and if we don't prod them weigh them cut them examine them photograph them then we're not doing our job because it isn't just to be looked at i mean it's what of course we have to put on display because educating the public inspiring their wonder of the natural world and especially you know at this time of huge climate change and you know habitat loss species disruption I think the job of museums should be, and is, certainly as the Natural History Museum in London, is to inspire passion and wonder and appreciation of the natural world. So there, there is this double-edged sword, and I think maybe we do get away from some of the tricky questions because people go as a kid, they sometimes go as a parent or a grandparent, so people possibly have more of an emotional attachment to 
the Natural History Museum than they may do to other museums or galleries. Because mm. for me, I remember going, I went for my seventh birthday. I have a picture underneath the giant squid, <laughs> which I now look after. It was a model at the time. Uh, thumbs up, looking really happy. I have this lovely image for my seventh mm. birthday. I remember going with school. You know, you have these kind of emotional attachments and the museum grows with them. That lovely, there was a bit of an outcry when they decided to move Dippy from the central hall. Mm. I was sad. I was initially sad, but the whale is beautiful. <laughs> the whale is beautiful. And I, I have been back since. We're moving towards a really beautiful place to kind of wrap this up. So I will just tell you that um, very shortly after I got together with my now husband, we were having a conversation when we realised neither of us could remember how fossils were formed. <laughs> and we went, should we go to the Natural History Museum? And we just took the tube across town to the Natural History Museum um, because it is free and that is an astonishing mm. thing so off the back of what you just said John if you if you are able to if you have access to it go to the Natural History Museum as an adult it's free and it's great and go on the spirit specimen tour because tucked away at the back of the Natural History Museum in London is the like new building which is where I mostly worked which is the spirit building and so you can see through the glass windows all of the like fish specimens and you can see how many layers of building there are because there are corridors and corridors floors of floors and you can really get a sense of like oh my god there are so many specimens in there that like we'll just never be able to see and you can go on spirit tours i believe they're free um, well, they're can... not free anymore oh, sadly. Really? <gasps> wow okay caveat the museum's not entirely free but it's mostly <laughs> free i stand by what i said you can if you want to get an idea of this i mean the spirit collections if you can afford mm. them they are well worth doing they're really wonderful but even if you just go onto the principal floor of, of the darwin center you can get an idea of the mm. because it's got the same layout you can see through the glass but yeah i agree it's, it's a wonderful place to go yeah and they're creepy specimens. It's not all the cute little pandas or whatever. No clean bone things. You get to see some of the weird stuff. <laughs> yeah, you want to see a squid eye the size of your fist. <laughs> <laughs> and you can see my giant squid. It is mine. My museum might loan it, but it is mine. 8.62 um, <laughs> meter giant squid. So cool. Yeah, and it's just creepy. Like, I, I working there, sometimes there'll be, like, nobody else on the floor. And there are these, like, really dark rooms that are really, they're really air-conditioned. So it, like, blows cold air and it's, like, freezing in there. And to save electricity, the lights don't turn on unless you turn them on. And you're walking down these dark corridors um, of, like, metal and glass. Sometimes the, like, cabinets are uh, glass-doored. And there's, like, this one area, this one corner where there's, like, loads of eels in jars... And they're so creepy. And I always creep myself out every time I'm walking down because there's this like whistling sound and it's like pitch black and it's freezing cold and you're all alone and your podcast is playing. <laughs> but like that means you can't tell who's behind you. And it's just like, yeah, if there's a horror movie set anywhere, I know so, that okay, we're, we're going to start talking about our new horror podcast yeah. <laughs> after this episode. Great. Lovely. So I think that is a, a lovely place to wrap things up there in that place of horror and wonder. Thank you so much, listeners, for joining us this week. That is it from me, Raf. That is it from Nemo. Bye. And from John, thank you so much for joining us, John. Oh, such a pleasure. I've had a real, really lovely time. So thank you and goodbye. We will see you all next time below deck. Guys Forgotten is a podcast distributed by Rusty Quill and licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Share Like 4.0 International License. 
The series is created by Nemo Martin and directed by Rafaela Marcus. Today's episode featured Rafaela Marcus, Nemo Martin, and John Ablett, and was edited by Lori Ann Davis and Catherine Rinella. Tries Forgotten is produced by Ian Gears, Lori Ann Davis, and production manager Natasha Johnston, with executive producers Alexander J. Newell and April Sumner. To subscribe, view associated materials, or join our Patreon, visit rustyquill.com. Rate and review us online. Tweet us at the Rusty Quill. Visit us on Facebook or email us at mail at rustyquill.com. Thanks for listening. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.